0: Welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast by Skiff Meetings, the podcast for curious event professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miel Nafs and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Skiff Meetings and in this episode, we are talking about the evolution of the exhibition industry, including short and long-term trends with the one and only Kai Hattendorf. Kai is the Managing Director and CEO of UFI, the Global Association of the Exhibition Industry. As such, he's responsible for UFI activities and events globally. He's a journalist by education and he previously worked at Euronews and the BBC and also spent a long time in senior leadership roles at Mesa Frankfurt. He was recently named the Business Event Strategist of the Year by PCMA and was the Honorary President of the Joint Meetings Industry Council, (JMIC) from 2019 to 2021. In this conversation about the evolution of the exhibition industry, we, we talk about the importance of data in telling stories and making business case for trade shows, We talk about the recovery and reopening of China. We talk about moving to a year-round customer engagement rather than standalone exhibitions and trade shows. We talk about how we really move the needle on sustainability around events and trade shows and Kai shares his thought-provoking vision of the future of trade shows. You don't want to miss that. Hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. I invite you to check out the other episodes of the podcast, which you can find on our website or by subscribing through your favorite podcast service. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Kai Hattendorf, great to have you on the podcast with us today. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Miguel. It's great to be here. And I think I can still say belated Happy New Year. Oh, absolutely. I think it's it's valid for almost the whole of January, I think. So
0: um, Kai Hattendorf, CEO of UFI, uh, would love to get a little short introduction from you about you know, your first experiences in the uh, business events industry and
1: uh, how you became the, the CEO of UFI. Oh, uh, I, I became the CEO of UFI because I got a call and was asked if I would be interested in becoming the CEO of UFI. <laughs> um, and that was in 2015 uh, when I was working at, at Messe Frankfurt. Um, and uh, they actually got me into the exhibition and B2B events industry by um, asking me to join from the telecommunications industry. And they themselves got me uh, from having worked in a startup and they themselves got me from having worked in media because originally I'm a broadcast journalist. So it's, as you see, I'm one of those people who qualified for our industry by doing every anything but the events industry. Perfect. Well, originally I am a sound technician and musician, so yeah.
0: And now I am a journalist in some sense. So I think this is this is a fun, definitely fun role reversal in some ways. And um, for anybody who's not familiar with UFI, can you just explain kind of you know what the organization is and uh, you know, how the members work, that kind of thing?
1: Sure. I mean, first of all, we are a global trade association. Uh, UFI stands for Union de France Internationale, uh, founded in 1925. And uh, we represent the global trade show industry, the organizers and uh, the venues and the major service providers and suppliers. Uh, and as the global trade body, we are also the umbrella for close to 70 national and regional associations that are servicing the exhibition sector around the world. So we are really, we've grown a global footprint in the last 100 years, uh, representing our sector and working closely with our colleagues all over the world. Okay,
0: And uh, for, um, I mean, there's IAEE in in the US. Are they competitors? Are they members? How do you have a relationship with them? How does that work? Because I think a lot of our audience may be more familiar with IAEE.
1: Sure. I mean, IAE was founded a few years after UFI in the U.S., uh, and they are many ways uh, doing in North America what UFI does globally. Uh, they have some international outreach, mainly through their educational program. Um, we've worked together on a number of issues. Uh, we have the more closer relationships in the U.S. to uh, CISO, the Society of Independent Show Organizers, who uh, represent a for-profit show organizer companies, Esker is an UFI member. Uh, We have good relationships with many players uh, in the VMA side, in the um, venue management association side. So we are part of that North American ecosystem. Uh, An example for the collaboration there is all of us working together to fund and uh, guide the uh, businesses of the Exhibitions and Conferences Alliance, our joint advocacy office in Washington. That's run by Tommy Goodwin.
0: Okay, excellent. Um, and just to kind of complete the the picture of what is what Ufi is and what it does, I know you do a lot with data as well, and you have access to a lot of data. Could you maybe explain, you know, what you what data you share uh, with your members, and also things that you share outside, and you know what kind of numbers you compile? Yeah,
1: sure. Uh, no, we are the global go-to place for people who are looking for industry data uh, twice a year. Well, we are tracking the state of the industry globally in a product that's called the Global Exhibition Industry Barometer. Uh, the 30th edition will be out early in February. Uh, and There we track the global developments, uh, the KPIs, the profits and revenue developments on a global level, on a regional level and down to country profile. So uh, for your US listeners, there's a whole segment on the US and you can compare the development of the industry in the US with the development of the industry in North America and globally. You can draw conclusions, how is Asia doing versus the US? Uh, You can draw all these comparisons because the data is unified in its metrics. Um, Various other research initiatives and products uh, out and most of them Uh, We make available free of charge on our UFI research portal. So for those who are really into number crunching, ufi.org slash research. (laughs) You'll find more more numbers than I can say on a podcast.
0: Perfect. But the the main piece of research you do, how how are people using that? Are, Are they using it to make business decisions, where to invest, that kind of thing?
1: We have various user groups. First of all, many of our members use it to compare their own development on revenue and profit. Uh, with the industry um, mm-hmm. in their own markets, in international markets. Many use it to prioritize and identify key markets for them to explore and to expand into. Um, we, By now, when we put the data out, there are various research notes from financial institutions covering it for their respective investors. So you see it's a broad group of people um, mm-hmm. accessing that data. Uh, plus, of course, it also generates a lot of input then again for economic impact studies Uh, for general media awareness on the role and size of our industry
0: yeah really fascinating thanks for thanks for sharing that and uh, yeah we'll definitely be following up on on the next barometer etc so uh we're recording this in uh middle of january 2023 and the big news is of course china reopening i know that you're this is something of course that hopefully the data will show but not for a little while um and, and i'm sure that's been a bit of a hole in the data for a little while what what do you know? What could you tell us? What are you hearing from your members that are either in China or investing in China or active in that market?
1: Well, first of all, let's not forget that in 2021, China was one of the few markets that remained open. So uh, they've been carrying off the burden of keeping our industry going. And many of the international organizers um, used China as a real generator of revenue back then, which was great. Then they obviously went into a rather muddy situation again for the last couple of months. And now with the reopening, there is a sense of excitement. Uh, We ran a webinar with some of our members just before Christmas when the news broke that the opening would come. And I myself was in Hong Kong just a few days before that discussing plans for the reopening of travel between Hong Kong and the mainland. There's a lot of pent-up demand, like we've seen it in, in all the other markets after the reopening. Right now, we will have to see how the new travel regulations impact Chinese attendance at mm-hmm. shows outside of China uh, and when international visitors and exhibitors will return to China in large numbers. Uh, as we speak, this week, we have the first international shows in Europe with hundreds of Chinese exhibitors. There's Heimtextile textile taking mm-hmm. place in Frankfurt this weekend, um, they have 450, I had a chat with them today, they have 450 Chinese exhibitors compared to their usual pre-pandemic 520 or 530, showing the scale to which the Chinese businesses are looking to interact again with their international peers. When it comes to travel into China, uh, tons of invitations uh, reaching us to come over in March, April. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's some sentiment of let's wait and see how the current pandemic wave after the reopening goes, Uh, but um, whereas all the players we were speaking with back in November were hesitant to budget too much revenue and activities in China into their 2023 uh, plannings, there's now increased optimism, for sure, for the second half of the year, and in uh, some respects already for the second quarter. And that's, hey, 10 weeks away.
0: Yeah, pretty interesting. Do you think that the reopening, the pent up demand, do you think it'll follow a similar pattern to how it's worked in Europe and the US? I mean, the Chinese market is different. I don't know if it's more centralized, but it does seem very much more kind of controlled in some sense. Are you expecting differences or are you expecting the the flow to be quite similar to, to the kind of Western markets?
1: I think we can best compare China as a huge internal market to the US as the other huge internal market in the B2B market space globally. And um, if we look at the rate of recovery across the U.S. as states reopened, uh, those who reopened early were able to recapture almost pre-pandemic levels of business already in 2022. Uh, It'll be similar in China uh, with the national demand. Uh, The third major market to look at is Europe as a whole, uh, as an integrated market. And you see the similar uh, expectations here. If you look at the 2023 revenue expectations that we have in the barometer, we are somewhere between 80 and 95% for the whole market compared to pre-pandemic levels. And in in, in the UK, for instance, they're optimistic they will grow beyond pre-pandemic already in the first half of this year. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if China recovers with the same speed. Mm-hmm. And again, then add 5 to 10 to 15% international business to that into China, and you see where we are headed. I think the main issue over the next couple of months to drive the international business into and out of China again will be travel, uh, will be airline capacity, as it was in reconnecting Europe and North America. Um, let's not forget it was only in spring last year that the US reopened their borders mm-hmm. for international travelers.
0: Yeah, really interesting. And last question on this, but the the pent up demand. um, You know, the last I spoke with, we had Ken Holsinger from Freeman on the show recently, and he was talking, we had this number on Skiff meetings around 65%. Uh, in kind of spring of last year, which was where we thought kind of shows were in, you know, a general. And Freeman confirmed that number. They came up with the same number. And now he's talking about about 84. I know your numbers are slightly different, but you talked about kind of reasonably similar numbers. Are you how certain are you that that, you know, we'll go back to 2019 levels? Uh, one of the things that Ken said was that 2019 was an exceptionally good year. So maybe we shouldn't compare with it. But, you know, just for the sake of of having some sort of baseline, do you think the pent-up demand is going to sort of even out and will just be kind of, I guess, you know, back at 2019 levels in some way?
1: Well, it, this is a pendulum. The pendulum swung all the way in the over to the digital side because people could not meet. And now the movement is swinging to the other side, and people are eager to meet. And everything. We revenge tourism and the uh, revenge exhibition <laughs> attendance and whatever you have it. Uh, this is not the new normal. Uh, The new normal will be a new baseline and a new balance. Um, There are various trends coming together. Uh, I believe the pandemic has fast-tracked that trend away from one global leading event to a series of regional leading events, Mm -hmm. which means you will have fewer people attending one mega show, but you will have in total way more people attending a, a number of regional events. So overall, attendance numbers will go way beyond where we were in 2019. The breakdown and the scale of offers will be different, it will be more regional, less entirely global in my in our view. Mm-hmm. And it will that will open up the B2B events as well as every kind of events to all those people who experienced event brands online during the pandemic mm-hmm. and are now eager to go and attend it face to face. And so it's the new novel will have seen the pandemic as a catalyst for some trends we saw before mm-hmm. that will. Fast tracked in many ways, but it has also opened up a whole new the next generation of business leaders being eager to actually physically interact face to face and not just screen to screen.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I I had a slightly different interpretation, and um, if you don't mind, kind of exp- I'll, I'll explain my, my thinking and then maybe get your reaction. So we're hearing from a lot of corporates that budgets are tight and they're deciding you know which events to go to i think i think you've also been hearing a lot from from different corporations and and my thinking is, or from what i'm hearing is sort of the big events the ones that everybody's at and you have to be there they're still investing in and then you have the smaller events that are more personalized maybe they're client events maybe they're you know places where you can shake hands and really kind of get to know everybody there or training events or those kind of things and then for me there's sort of a a middle ground where there's a lot of events in between them. It's not maybe that everybody's there, but it's an interesting event. And I see those as being a bit more in danger. From what you just said, you're kind of saying that those may be actually benefiting because people may not go to the large ones. Am I reading that correctly? I think you're right and I'm right.
1: And I think uh, <laughs> okay. if, 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 we, if we combine this both, we find the truth. Um, what you've described is the old retail brand issue uh, you're either discount or you're, you're luxury. Mm -hmm. And everything that's middle of the road gets squeezed out when when things change. Uh, We've seen the same uh, in the B2B event space after the 2007, 2008 recession, where um, the number three or number four trade show servicing sector in the region was suffering and and largely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And you had a a concentration on the leading brands. It'll be the same this time. I'm I'm, I'm entirely uh, agreeing with you. Those Me Too events will struggle. Uh, However, the must attend events uh, will change and and break down from these globally one in many industries into regional ones. And then you have a regional must attend event where you can send more people because you have a smaller impact on your carbon budget for travel. Uh, You have Mm -hmm. a smaller impact for your time away from the office or from your screen. And you can open that up to more people. Uh, what yeah. we see generally is uh, in line with what you've said, is that, yes, there are fewer people attending B2B events. They bring the same checkbook, so to say. But mm. when you had five buyers from a company, you now have three buyers because they no longer bring the two juniors that they are training. Um, if that is something we will see returning, uh, the attendance as part of a, trainee exp- a training experience or a career experience, or not—that's another question. Uh, yeah. But right now, indeed, with budgets tight, there will be fewer people in attendance. Uh, they will select more carefully, mm-hmm. but uh, they have the same impact uh, on the exhibitor uh, mm-hmm. as before when it comes to the power purchasing power.
0: And sort of to finalize this, the—are you seeing the opportunity in the larger organizers of these larger trade shows to figure out how they can create regional versions, but sort of under the same brand? Or are you seeing an opportunity for outsiders to jump in and sort of create different shows there?
1: Oh, both. We will see both and both will be successful and there will be failures in both as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, I've had many conversations over the last six months where exhibition and event organizers called us as an association asking about our customer touch points. How do you engage your, your association membership all year round? Of course, they think we're doing something right in, in doing that and they want to learn how they can adapt that to their events portfolio. So yeah. what to do in between the events, how to link their regional events with a, with a joint narrative, mm-hmm. uh, how to take a storyline from A to B to C, uh, how to evolve the product across the regions to create a better cultural fit, and what to do on screen and digital in between the physical meetings. Yeah. Uh, so this is all the evolution of a business model that was very much centered around a few days in the year with a face-to-face activation towards what some call omnichannel, what some call 365, of a business model of uh, where we as an industry can offer a, ver- a variety of um, sales and marketing options to the companies we work with that we call mm-hmm. exhibitors uh, to help them to position themselves holistically.
0: Yep, I think it makes perfect sense. It sounds like a lot of these companies have not been able to do that in the past. Why do you think that is? And and do you think that they need to change deeply how they work as a company to be able to kind of offer a a year round engagement? Or is this a relatively simple thing if they already do it well for in person events?
1: I think they have to go through the same process we have to go through as an industry. Uh, we have to change if we produce something like a 365, mm-hmm. uh, if we produce omnichannel. channel uh, We need to add to our focus on in-person event, uh, more data focus, uh, more, more digital focus. Uh, we need to bring in all these skills and the mindset to create these products and services and then to to push them out. Uh, likewise, on the customer side, if you take a big company, they've usually built a specialized team on events or even a specialized team around participation Mm -hmm. at at conferences and uh, exhibitions. And these are the specialists that operationally deal with it. uh, And they will probably have to be more integrated in or better linked with uh, Mm -hmm. the holistic marketing and sales organization. Uh, It's ultimately, and as always, it's about overcoming silos and becoming more uh, network-like organizations and structures to deliver on the KPIs for the respective businesses.
0: It sounds like you've gone through a lot of this process internally and, and can, can help your members also do that <laughs> in some way.
1: I think we've, we've we've all done that as associations through the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. And what the pandemic surely taught us is on the on the events industry association side is collaboration beats competition. And mm-hmm. we all have to work together uh, to settle the big issues. And, and whether you then go and merge associations or, or buy up uh, smaller players or mm-hmm. whether you have collaboration agreements, there are a million of different ways uh, to, to to get that done. But I think our members rightly respect uh, the best possible support uh, for the association fee that they pay. Because ultimately, this is why we exist. So um, if we don't go through that process, um, we are frankly not very good at doing our job. I think very well put. So one
0: of the initiatives that I'd like to talk about briefly is uh, sustainability. You were involved in COP27 with the Race to Zero campaign, I believe, and uh, you've been talking about sustainability for for a long time, um, which I think is is great. um, But I think we all agree we're sort of at the point where we need to have real actions and real kind of next steps. I think a lot of what you did at COP twenty seven was was about that. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of where you are and how can we, you know, really talk about in person exhibitions that you know are, are are quite a wasteful activity in many ways, but you know there is always ways to improve that. How do we kind of bring sustainability into this in a really
1: effective way? Yeah. Um, now we launched together with industry, with ICA and and and, and now hosted a facility by by Jameek, the Joint Meetings Industry Council. We hosted. Uh, we launched the Net Zero Carbon Events Initiative uh, last year, um, brought together originally by the uh, colleagues from the ACC who as, as the UK was hosting COP twenty six up there in Glasgow. Um, And we united the industry behind a pledge with more than 100 industry players working to formulate that. And as you say, one year on in Sharm El Sheikh at COP27, uh, we didn't just say, what do we want to do? But we answered the question, how will we do this? Uh, By by releasing a roadmap for the industry to become net zero carbon by 2050, the latest. Uh, Many markets are well advanced and will get there way earlier. Uh, Now, this roadmap essentially gives you the what to do list Uh, and the work in the initiative, which is by now more than 500 players from the industry collaborating, is about identifying and sharing good practices and best practices on reducing greenhouse gas emissions around events of all types uh, and reducing them by 50 percent, at least by the year of 2030. it all sounds overwhelming and a huge task, but it's so many small steps you can do to get started. So there are documents and, and how-to guides and the roadmap all available free of charge for everyone on the Net Zero Carbon Events website. Um, and we are working to, uh, in by now we're working eight parallel work streams uh, on issues like waste reduction, on issues like uh, travel and accommodation, uh, on issues like local food sourcing but also on transversal issues like uh, measurements and metrics uh, to make sure that we can show that we as the events industry uh, are a part of the solution to the climate crisis because we build the meeting places and the marketplaces that bring people together to discuss and solve find solutions, uh, parts of the solutions to solve the issue. Um, yes, of course as you as you said every event is wasteful in the way that it produces a huge, greenhouse gas emissions footprint, and you have to look at the elements of which we that we can directly influence as an industry. That is everything that happens in the venue. For instance, how we source the energy, how we source the food, uh, whether we use plastics or not. Um, there are parts that are out of our control because they're at the discretion and decision of the participant. How do I travel there? Where do I stay? How do I behave outside of the venue? Now, within the climate conversations, these are known as scope one, scope two, and scope three. And I won't go into the details, but what is needed is a dialogue between us as the events industry, with the hospitality sector, with the with the travel sector, to see who can fix what. We can build a meeting place or a marketplace where scientists can solve the sustainable evolution fuel issue, uh, but we can't give them a sustainable aviation fuel because, hey, uh, we don't know how to do that. right? So that's their part to solve. And therefore, it's key that we work together. And that's why it's so great that the uh, United Nations is a uh, partner of and backing that net zero carbon events initiative. Ultimately, it gives us a seat at the table uh, where the things are debated and decided. And this is where we as an industry have always wanted to be. Now, what does this mean? This is all this kind of big stuff and, and intergovernment stuff and, and 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 it's the advocacy work that happens every day. What do you have from it as the event organizer or as the event attendee? Really, the resources on the website that tell you what you can do today to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. And likewise, when you have the discussion whether your event it's good to actually have an event, mm-hmm. um they point that we make is that we aggregate everyone coming together. Just imagine people would meet in, in smaller groups without a central place to meet um, and a major event would not be in one place at one time. Um, but all these connections would be made in individual trips or small group trips. You would have a multitude of uh, sure. flights compared to the ones that are taking place this way. And so, we are validly making the point that events are a huge aggregator of carbon emissions, uh, but that also allows us to concentrate on diminishing them in one place, rather than having carbon emissions popping up decentralized all over. And ultimately, we are working on some numbers there, there is a factor, multiplier to which it is more efficient and better for the planet if we have a proper meeting with everyone in one place.
0: Sure. I think you said something interesting about about the travel and, and I guess not um, you know collaborating with other industries and other people trying to solve those issues and travel, as far as I'm aware, is is the biggest, especially air travel and long haul travel is the biggest contributor to the kind of greenhouse emissions. Um, but, you know, in a sense, the industry also promotes that long haul travel. How, how do you balance that out? Because it's, you know, I, I can see it's relatively easy to say, hey, that's somebody else's problem. But ultimately, if you're creating an event that attracts and by default, you know, wants people to travel long haul, you are also promoting that thing, which is the most pollutant in many ways. How can you balance that out? Or how can you come up with a compromise that kind of makes sense?
1: Well, that goes directly back to what we were discussing before, um, the regionalization of events, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are events where you want to have people from all over the world to come together. And if you look at the politicians level, uh, this is why the COP conference is the COP conference with everyone coming together from all over the world for the big climate conference. Mm -hmm. Or take a G20 summit. Uh, I was just in India when India was was, uh, hosting the first meetings, having taken over the presidency of the G20 last month. Uh, When it matters, people meet. And uh, where that needs to happen on a global scale, people will travel the world to do so. But the way businesses will evolve and the way exactly this conversation that you and I are having now will evolve will be yet another driver for a regionalization of events Mm -hmm. that don't need to have predominantly a global audience united in one place, but can also be a number of regional audiences coming together.
0: So there's definitely different sort of solutions, uh,
1: and sustainability needs to be a part of that consideration for flying. Yeah, and if, the, you, the best if you solution. then take Europe, for instance, um, many of the places in Europe can by now be reached with other means of transport than just planes, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that is acceptable, right? as the train networks uh, are, are getting better, or mm-hmm. events are becoming more regionalized. So um, it's. It is a part of the discussion, and it will impact the way events evolve and the prioritization of events and the scaling of events evolves. Um, and part of the answer will indeed be a regionalization.
0: Okay, interesting. Thank you. Thank you for for clarifying and kind of expanding on on that answer. Um, so I know you 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 recently released um, five trends, uh, which I think a lot of different publications talk about trends at this time of the year, and I think it's always interesting to kind of predict the future. I don't want to go into all the details, but what do you think from, from the trends that you're predicting, one of them is, is around sustainability, but from the other ones, what do you think is going to have the biggest impact this year um, in terms of how business is done, particularly
1: in the exhibition sector? Mm-hmm. I think. The, the last year was all about the trade and trade show and reconnecting people uh, to, to, to come to the floor, come back to the floor, and they were eager to. Um, now that this is done, and we were already discussing that this is not the new normal yet, uh, with having in mind that we are facing inflationary pressures unseen in most of the mature economies in at least uh, your lifetime and mine, uh, and facing recessions. Uh, we need to be super focused on the needs of the customer. In everything we produce and every event we do, we need to think first and foremost, how does this help our customers to be successful? How does it earn them the money back that they invest and more? If we do this right, the rest will follow and we will manage through this recession and through this inflation. And Luckily, inflation rates are already coming down again. Uh, we will manage through this well, as we've seen in 2007, 2008, when we had the last recession. And as we see in markets of high inflation uh, that are doing well, despite that challenge. So the absolute key is to know what your customers want, expect and need and to help them see how you help them get it. Mm-hmm.
0: So really that customer service, that customer approach, a lot also what you're talking about, the kind of year round connection, Um, that seems to be part of that as well, right? It's not just a, once people show up, we'll we'll kind of take care of them, but actually kind of handhold, handholding all throughout
1: the year. Yeah, and that's where the, um, I think where the discussion about what really is the digitization of our industry comes in. Um, I am known to be outspoken on virtual events. Uh, they are the, an eternal business case zombie, in my view. Um, they just don't fly. Uh, I don't believe in the metaverse. Um, <laughs> uh, early on, when I joined Massive Frankfurt, there was the hype around Second Life, and we were discussing whether we need to rebuild the venue in Second Life, and, and we did not, because uh, yeah. we went to the IBM uh, conference center that they had set up there and saw some rather questionably looking avatars talking. Food born of business. So um, I I don't believe in the virtual worlds but um, there's a lot of technology and a lot of data and we've gladly learned gracefully learned a lot about it in the pandemic uh, and how we can use data to improve the customer experience and how to build more digital products and services around the physical events in between the physical events. So we we call that more data less hype. Um, It's not about uh, throwing a big catchphrase out there like hybrid or metaverse, yeah. but it's really about the applications that are not that sexy, but that all make a big difference, uh, again, in the customer experience. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense.
0: I like to talk about invisible technology, uh, which is you know, really the idea that if, if the technology is working really well, you shouldn't really notice it's there almost. Um, and and i think examples of that are just like you know qr code check-ins when you arrive at an exhibition or something like that which seem so obvious now but i think the pandemic really accelerated in many senses a lot of these technologies a lot of kind of in, in implementations um yeah you're
1: right and what was what was a weird thing 4 years ago now is a standard uh, that that you just use on your way to the show floor exactly it just feels like everybody's expecting it to be there it, in terms of I, sort of- I have to say, I have to say though, I miss my good old show catalogs. You know, in the old <laughs> days when I was, when I went to trade shows as a reporter, and I went to Seebit in 2000, and I got these kind of two kilos of exhibitor book. Um, yeah. I used that for weightlifting in my hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so um, in, in in some ways, we all have a reason to to miss some of the haptic things we had in the past, but. Uh, to have all the exhibitor data in an in an app, for instance, has become such an invisible technology, uh, like like you just described, and nobody questions it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I
0: I, I I tend to. I'm not a big fan of big, heavy pieces of paper, but I think when you're on site, it there is something about just having it there very quickly that that makes sense. I don't know, you know then taking it home and it eventually going in the bin you know, five years later. It's probably not the best use of you know that much paper and printing, etc.
1: No, when um, you clean out your office and you find all the old ones, um, let's just say, when I left Mr. Frankfurt, I gave a lot of uh, things to the company archive. And I said, oh, OK, fine. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's where that was. OK. <laughs> Kai, okay, um,
0: fascinating chatting with you. Um, just wanted to ask you kind of a final kind of wrap up question in a sense. Um, do you have a, a clear vision of, of what a business trade show will look like in, let's say, five, ten years time? And I guess what I'm most interested in is is the differences. What do you see will be what do you think will be different at that point?
1: It will still be a show floor. Mm -hmm. Um, the show flow will probably be less about presenting products and more about facilitating conversation. Uh, I don't know if that's a conference stage or whether this is a companies having their booth redesigned in a way that it is not just reusable, but also uh, conversation driven. Um, There will be products on display uh, where you have tangible products because nothing beats seeing them, feeling them, touching them. Um, but it'll be a way more communication-driven floor. You will have, again, probably a more intimate experience, uh, not 500,000 square meters uh, of a world-leading show floor somewhere once a year. Uh, You will probably be connected uh, through your Apple goggles or whatever they will release over the next couple of weeks, so one piece of disruptive technology that you and I don't know about yet. Mm -hmm. that will change the digital experience in a way that becomes more holistic and you can probably be better connected uh, to your back office uh, in in many, many ways. Uh, It will will have an element of augmentation uh, that adds a different layer, an additional layer of of services, values, experiences, Uh, but it will remain driven uh, by people wanting to spend time with other people.
0: Yeah, really I mean, interesting. So I, I guess in your vision, the AR goggles or whatever they will be sort of replace the phone in a way, become a more intuitive way of connecting with the office or with work and maybe getting information from exhibitors or matchmaking or something like that. Is that sort of how you see it?
1: I think we're probably at the end of the evolution of what you can do with a pocket computer that is driven by a big screen, uh, mm-hmm. i.e. an iPhone or a smartphone. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we have a new bit of tech that will evolve or replace that pocket screen yeah. and drive parts of the experience. To what level that is kind of If that's goggles or if that is haptic, I have no idea. Uh, Ask, ask Hubertino. (laughs) Um, They will will show something and uh, it it will will or will not be a game changer. Um, But a piece of tech uh, that will allow us to have a better service, customer experience, better business done will drive the uh, value of the event onwards and upwards absolutely yeah i think
0: that's a really interesting and clear vision so thank you for for sharing that with us so the only thing i have left to ask you is is if you can recommend someone that we can continue these conversations with, or someone else who would be a good guest on the event manager podcast
1: well thanks for giving me a short heads up on that so i could actually think about this <laughs> uh, i think with that with that emphasis on customer focus um it would be worth hearing the customer's perspective. And uh, we had a great speaker uh, back in June at our Global CEO Summit in Hamburg from Siemens uh, in charge of their events, Stephen Rose. And uh, I think he would be a fantastic voice for your podcast to add the, the perspective of a global business entity like Siemens and, and what they use events for and what their expectations are and also what they uh, foresee coming, uh, both on sustainability and on the Ultimately, the way they want uh, participation events to help them drive their bottom line.
0: Perfect. I think that's an excellent recommendation, and we always love to hear from from the client side and you know what they're what they're looking at, what trends are they following, etc. I think is always really fascinating. So, greatly appreciate that. Kai, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wish you lots of luck with all of the UFI activities. Looking forward to seeing the barometer soon, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch.
1: Thank you, Miguel, and. Uh... Looking forward to sharing you next time. Perfect.